So Luke chapter 19, verse 28 is where we're going to be this morning, and let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to know who you are, that we get to see your heart and your heart for us. God, that we get to know the God of all creation and that you desire to be known by us intimately, God, that you desire for us to know your heart, that there would be no confusion, that we can just see who you are and how you love us through your scripture and through your Holy Spirit, God. Just open us up just to spend time and hang out with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you know, sometimes you get going throughout the week and, you know, you get different things come at you sideways, either warfare and some, sometimes some theological, I guess, or doctrinal arguments and some of that stuff. And, and it's kind of hard. It's like, I, I don't know too many relationships you have in your life where somebody will come up and challenge you on that. You know, nobody comes up and says, hey, Tim, did you know this about Heidi? No, they just either assume I already know, and I know, you know what I mean? It's not like, you know, people are out spreading rumors about certain people, you know what I mean? Or those things, you know them well, but it's, it's interesting when people come at you with doctrine thing, and it's like, I know my Savior, I know his heart, and I know what it is, and what you're saying isn't right. It doesn't line up with it, and it's hard. It's kind of an attack, and so sometimes those things can end up weighing heavy as you go through and you look at them, but then you sit down and you spend time with God, and you see his heart through Scripture, and it's just such just refreshing, you know, to, to get alone. It's like, you know, a loved one, you go off for a weekend or something and just, just to spend time with them, just to talk to them, just to hear their heart, you know. Many times we get running in our lives, we don't slow down to acknowledge even the people around us or, you know, let them know besides the regular I love you running in and out type thing. And, and so um, it was just kind of sweet as a study, you know, a little yesterday and, and this morning and stuff, just to go, oh yeah, that's my Savior. And as we look at the scripture this morning, we're, we're going to look at that as kind of our question to answer, if you would, is who is Jesus? Who, what is God revealing? Who is Jesus in this passage? What is he doing? What do we learn about him and his heart? And, and what's going on here? And this is, as we've gone through, we've known Jesus is traveling to um, Jerusalem on his way up for his last time in Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He's warned his disciples now three times in just the book of Luke of what's going to be happening, that he's going to the cross, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be killed. And in verse 28, Luke 19, verse 28 says, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it seems like a simple statement, but to know what you're heading into you know, um, uh, Dave Guswick was talking about courage, you know, and courage, you know, if you jumped in front of the bus and pushed somebody out of the way or something like that, momentarily, you know, that kind of courage. But what kind of courage does it take to continue knowing what you're heading to? You know, I don't think there's many of us that would, when you really stop to consider it, to realize what he was going to and why is important. And the gravity of that. Me, I have no problem injuring myself. If I hurt myself, I put something through me, a piece of glass or whatever, I'll pull it out, I'll deal with it. I can deal with it at that moment. Going to a doctor when I feel fine for a surgery, 
oh, it's the worst thing. It's like, give me the surgery tomorrow. I don't want to have to think about it for the next two weeks to get scheduled or what's going to happen. I don't want to have to Google what's going to happen and see all the other surgeries or what's going wrong. And it's just that knowing it's coming. But yet Jesus knew it was coming. He's walking towards it. And even most believers that are martyred, martyred didn't have a choice. He chose to go this way. It wasn't happening to him. He chose to put himself in this situation. And it begs a question of why. What drove Jesus? Why is he so driven? And what's important in that sense to do this was, was obviously the sin and, and to have victory over sin. But we reveal on his way as he enters Jerusalem, it reveals his heart and, and more of his purpose as he comes in. And in verse 29, and it says, And it came to pass when he draw near to Beth, Beth Page on his way, and yeah, Beth Page and Beth, Bethany to the Mount called Olives, that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where you where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which one has never sat. Loose it and bring it here. Now He's going there, and it's kind of interesting. One thing I, I was looking at, uh, F.B. Myers kind of brought this out. Um, good, good person to study with some background stuff. But there are three times where Jesus used something exclusively. This is a cult, small animal. You're going to go find this animal. He's, he's prepared it. There's a plan. We don't know exactly what all went. Did he send a messenger ahead to pay for the cult? Or did an angel show up like Mary and Joseph and tell this man, hey, this cult's for this. But there's preparation here. And here's this cult that's never been sat on. And there's only two other times in the Bible we see that is something's exclusive for Christ where it wasn't ever used. One was, don't get all weird with it, Mary and her womb. He was the only there. That was exclusively for him. This cult, right, which was, is going to be part of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the announcing of the coming Messiah, his triumph over it, that choice to go to the cross, and the tomb he was buried in was never used before. So those are three things which I find interesting when you think of that. Here's three things that Jesus had set aside only for him. His birth, his triumph over sin, and death coming in that victory, and his death and burial on the cross. And those are the three things that he asks us to partake in. To be born again, to triumph over sin, and to be dead, to be dead to that old nature, which I find is kind of interesting that he brought out here. And so he goes and he has these disciples in verse 31. It says, and if anyone asks you, why are you losing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So he sends these two disciples off to go do some GTG. GTD. Not Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Goat, okay? They're going to go do some Grand Theft Goat here. You know, there are not a lot of details we have on this. Might as well have some fun with it. But so he goes and sends them, right? He doesn't, you know, there's not a lot in any of the Gospels explanation of how it was paid or prepanned or any of this. But what's amazing to me with his disciples, with everything they've done, at this point, what do they do? For once, they just go do what he says, you know? It's kind of interesting. Like, oh, go steal a goat? Sure. What? You want us to go pray for six people? Hands go up. You want us to go do this? Hands go up. Go steal something? Sure. We're on that. We got this covered. Just a thought, you know. And so, verse 32, and those, so those who were, were sent went their way and found it just as he said. 
But as they were loosing it, the owner came and said, why, do you, why are you loosening, my, loosening the colt? And they said, the Lord, Lord has need of it. And so they just simply obeyed. It's kind of a kick to see him go. And, and it's this little colt, you know. And I mean, if you wanted to twist the scriptures, and if we were going to start doing that here, I'd say, okay, anybody, go, go find a car with keys in it, maybe a Dodge Colt, and bring it back to me. Just tell the owner, pastor has need of it. No. <laughs> but, you know, sorry. Maybe a Lamborghini dealer. If we're going to do it, we want to go big. No, not a Colt. Isn't Dodge Colt a little car anyways? Maybe not anymore. But anyways, I kind of picture like a Plymouth little Horizon Volkswagen rabbit looking thing. But anyways. And so, um, but it's interesting to see. And here it's a small colt, this little animal. He chooses this animal. It's not a, a big white horse. It's not a camel. It's this little animal. And it was, it was no one. I mean, it would have been small. I mean, in comparison, the colt at the time and stuff would be like riding a Great Dane into town. I mean, it was something that royalty would do because it was easier to get on and off. And if you weren't very trained with a horse, a smaller colt and stuff. But, but ultimately, it wasn't. There's a clear comparison as we go through this that it isn't a stallion. His coming in and a triumphal entry, what was known, especially in the Roman world of a triumphal entry, would be a general or a conquering king would be coming in riding on a stallion. And behind him and before him, his army would be there. And he would be bringing symbols of his power and his accomplishments. If it was a general returning from a war or a king coming from a battle, they'd either have the head of the enemy on a pike or they would have them there chained up and dressed up. Many times, like the Jewish tradition, was they, they would keep the kings, the enemy kings alive. They'd take their king and they'd keep them alive and they'd keep them as a prize, a living trophy. You know, here they are, and they mock him and show, hey, look, this was a king of something, such, and I can have him wash my feet, you know, or whatever. And it's so, it came in, and, you know, some advantage to picking the guy's brain of what, you know, how he ran things maybe, but these symbols of his victory would come in, in this procession. So you would have this procession come in. They would prepare the way. They'd make sure the streets are clear of debris or whatever was going on. Or if there was a siege, they would clear the way for the king to come in and the ruler come in on his horse with his army traveling in. And he would come in and make a decree and a speech of, now on, this is my rule. This is what it's going to be like. This is what this town is. I'm gonna, I am now the king of Jerusalem, and I'm going to take it over. We're going to be the greatest nation. This is going to be the greatest city ever. And do not disobey me, or I'll take off your head. And they do these great speeches about what's going to happen and these promises. And then they would go to the god of that town or temple and show the respect and please that god and worship whatever god, or even overthrow that god and set up their own temple and worship there. And so this was kind of the tradition. And so, and what they'd be used to seeing as a triumphal entry. And it's interesting to see how Jesus takes his entry and he turns that all the way upside down. And how much that reveals to us about who Jesus is. And so they bring him, not the stallion, but this colt, this little animal who has not been ridden on before. And so verse 35, it says, And so they brought them to Jesus, and Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on it. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Now it's interesting to see they've got the animal, and they're throwing their coats on, an, on, on this little colt. And I don't ride horses much, but I've been around them enough to know what a horse blanket looks like after somebody's ridden it. 
You don't want to put it on. It's gross. Sweaty, hairy, hoarse, yeah, no. Okay, nonetheless, any animal at that time. And then to even spread your clothes out in front of the colt. And again, the cities in this situation was very dirty. They didn't have sewage and stuff. The cities were gross. There was a reason the lowly servant would be the one washing these people's feet after they came in from travel. But it would be a, a grotesque street. And so the preparation was here these people worshiping them prepare and, and, and put the, the covering on the animal, right? No great gold lace or nothing, just their cloaks. And they lay down in the street their clothes and palm branches as they go. And the other gospel says it's, it's even children doing it, the young. You know, and here he comes in with this. And, and for us, I mean, again, throwing your, uh, you know, your, ex, your, your cloak or your shirt on an animal, okay, you've got how many changes of clothes? This was a time where, I mean, something very contrast to our culture. You might, if you were lucky, had two sets of clothes. Okay, so guys, you know, you take out your outer cloak, you're standing there shirtless, and you put it on, and then you're going to get it back or not, or you lay it down in the middle of the road and get it horribly dirty. I mean, it was a sacrifice. It was a showing of worship, what they felt Jesus would require, and very humbly, and also humble for Jesus to accept this. He could have set up what? He could have set up an angel entourage. He could have had this huge grand entry, right? And the best of the best. But here he comes lowly with just the, the poor and the impoverished and the people that didn't have much are his army, are those who are worshiping, are the procession, are the citizens. He's got his 12 disciples, not mighty men or anything like that, and, and not even necessarily good with a sword. We'll see later on. But you see this, and you see who he is in his heart to be willing to come in. The king of all kings coming in, knowing where he's going to the cross, and willing to come in so humbly before. And he comes in planned, not required, but planned, thought out, that he would come that way in his heart in that. And how he just didn't come in prideful like these others, and it just overthrew that ideal and didn't force anybody. He wasn't coming with an army and saying, hey, the king is coming, clear the street, bow down before him. Here, throw your clothes over that and cover this up. We don't want him to... No, it was all willing. There wasn't a single person there forced to worship him. In verse 37, it says, then as he was drawing near to... near." to uh, near the descent of the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with one loud voice, all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So as he comes, they begin to worship him. And the worship becomes the symbols of his victory. What are they sharing? All the amazing works God has done. The people he's healed, the lepers he's set free, the power over sin, the power over sickness and destruction. Those become his symbols. It's not a captured king given in servitude, but yet freed sinners who are just rejoicing in what God has done. And what, what an awesome example to us of what worship is. Praising God for what he's done. And sadly, many times we can, you, you know, you sit down and you look at some of the different worship songs and stuff, and, and they don't do that. They're not about what God has done and who God is. It's about what I'm going to do for God. Or some of these, you know, I guess you call them anthems. There's some good um, 
musical, lyrical language to explain those things, like anthems or whatever. I'm sure you can ask Chris after he can tell you all about it. But, you know, our praise is coming in and it's worshiping God, and it does put us perspective of what God has done. And they're crying out, and amazingly, they're all worshiping God. People crying out the works of God. What, what a symbol of his victory. What a symbol of what is coming in that marks his accomplishment. It's not those enslaved and subdued, but those that are free. And they're saying, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on earth. And you can think back to when the birth announcement was given. You know, the birth announcement was glory to God in the highest from the angels. On heaven or on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. He doesn't come in with a ruling, I accomplished this war, this battle. His war cry is a war cry of peace. It's a war cry of peace. He will judge sin, but as he comes in, it isn't to condemn people to hell. He isn't coming to destroy. He is coming for the first time to accomplish on the cross peace between God and men, a way that men are no longer at war at enemy with God, a way for us to come to God freely, to have peace with that God, not through our works, not through anything we can accomplish, but what is he is accomplishing. He came to give that peace, something the whole Old Testament, all the sacrifices, all the, the performed rituals could not accomplish, he come to accomplish as the God of peace, not a God of war, not a conqueror, and I think sadly, many times as we continue on, you will see where people step into the wrong aspect of where God is. They want to come in, they see this world, they see the sin in it, and they want to go to war against it. As believers, we can't be mainstream, we got to be this, we got to be against this person, we got to be against that. No, that isn't the message. The message is God came and can save you from that. There is a warning of what will be to come. We will see that. But the message in the heart of God here is he has come to make peace. He's come to pay the price. He hasn't come to condemn. He's come to free, not to destroy. And the people that should have been happy, the people that should have been ready to go, so excited the Messiah came. We see him here in verse 39, and it said, Some of the fairies called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So the Pharisees see Jesus coming in, and many times Jesus, when they wanted to declare, you know, his glory or make him king, Jesus is like, now's not the time. Quiet. Shh. No, just quiet. I healed you. Don't go tell anybody. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be quiet. And now he's allowing it. And the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, are losing it. Wait, wait, wait. This is Messiah. You need to tell them to rebuke him. You need to tell them. And this day, this time, was set aside. At this time, this was a proper time for it. This was the day that this was to be fulfilled, that he would come in, that the, the ruling, reigning Christ, in the sense the 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 Lord of all creation was to enter into Jerusalem. Now, if you just read the book of Luke, you wouldn't know that in his adult life he had come to Jerusalem other times. This time is totally unique. And even on this time, he says, hey, even if they were to be silent, the rocks would cry out. The rocks would cry out. 
And if you would allow me a corny joke, I wish they would have been silent. Then we would have had Christian rock a long time ago. No. Yeah, it's kind of corny, I know. I get, I get that leeway as a pastor once in a while, right? But you sit there and you look at it, you know, you're kind of interesting though, right? What if they did? What would the Bible said? i just, you know, curious. What would have happened here if they would have been silenced, you know? And you just see it. You see the heart and the heart of worship here and how important that is. And, and I think what's amazing about this is before Jesus came, the Jewish leaders already had a warrant out for him. Put it out, man, if you see this guy, arrest him, bring him in. We want this guy. We want to drag him before. And so you would think if you're Jesus coming in and you knew that, hey, they're out looking for you, you'd come in quietly. Not like this. You know, or you would come in in a white stallion with an army, so that way they couldn't do nothing, you know. But he comes in like this, and they're just telling, man. And it, for them, it, it's just throwing coals on their head. They cannot handle the fact of what these people are saying in worship them. It bothers them. And what I find is amazing is when believers get together and worship the Lord, it causes problems for Satan. It does. He doesn't like it. He wants it to be silenced. Because the amazing thing is you seriously just lay your heart down and worship Him and praise Him for what He does, it so many times just removes just some of the filth and the distractions of this world. It lays aside it. I notice in my own life, there will be times where I'm going about life and I'm realizing, man, I don't have any worship. I don't play any worship songs in my car. I'm not, I'm just, I might be in the Word. I might this. But if I'm not worshiping God, it sure seems like my heart is just far away. You know, and, and I get in, you sit there and you can talk to people. And what's amazing, you, you look at... You, you look at um, situations where two extremes can happen. There's always a balance. You get people that go into this emotional state and they're not based in reality. It's based on a feeling. And they'll get all emotional, but when you look at their worship, who are they worshiping? It's not about God. It's about them and it's about a show. And then the other aspect, when you see people and they get all, you know, well, let's look at the details and this and this, and we want to debate end times theology, whatever it is. They want to, you know, all head knowledge, and you need to this and this. And the worship is dry if it exists at all. And if they do it at all, it's in the church. You'll, you, you know, do you ever catch them outside the church just listening to a worship song? No, it's not there. And that's where I find I can, you know, it's, it's kind of a good temperature check in my life. It's like, man, am I worshiping God? And if not, why? What if I... Why am I getting robbed of that? Spending that time just, just reflecting on how awesome he is. And not to say I can sing worth a darn. There's other ways of worshiping in that sense. Or just do it quietly. Um, you know, make sure the music's turned up louder than you, whatever. But, you know, there's just times if my heart, and it doesn't matter what I'm saying, if my heart isn't there, it's not to worship. And, and it's funny, I remember sometimes just sitting, and, and even as a kid, I'll be listening to the radio or whatever before, you know, all Air One and all these Christian radio stations, and I'd just be at a point, and I'd be changing the songs of whatever, the words, the lyrics of whatever song to a praise song. <laughs> so their voice would go away, it'd be helpful, and I could just, you know, put my own words in there. You know, it's just interesting to see sometimes of where that's a check in this worship, and these men, these, their heart. And what that does to the enemy, they don't like true worship of God. There's a sincerity of heart. You cannot, when you're praising God for what he's done, it is, there isn't an easy way to distract you at all from the reality of that. 
at that point, you're, you know, the light is shining. It just seems, at least in my life, you know, it, I've never been truly having a heart of worship and sinning at the same time. It just doesn't happen. Oh, well, willfully sinning, you know, <laughs> intentionally sinning. I mean, I, there's sometimes I guess I could be speeding, but, you know, it's not like I'm sitting there in rebellion to God and worshiping him. It just doesn't work. Not a sincere heart. So that's always a challenge to me. Am I worshiping him, or, or is there just a slight heart of rebellion in an area, slight heart of something else, or just, just, you know, overwhelmed and not thinking about who our Savior is? Verse 41, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even your, uh, especially in your day, the things that will make for you peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What an interesting thing here. Jesus enters. He has the symbols and the, the, here he has his citizens and his army of these lowly people just worshiping him out without force. And as he comes, his decree, if you would, his statement upon Jerusalem isn't, I'm going to make you mine and I'm going to revive you, but he weeps for it. He weeps for what's going to come. He weeps for not the stones and the mortar or any of those things, but the people. The people that are going to reject you. The peace they're going to miss out. As he sees the city, knowing what's going to be accomplished on the cross, and he weeps. It's not because, you know, most people you'd think of this and you go, man, if it was us, we'd be weeping about our fate. What's going to come? I'm going to have to go through the cross. I'm here. I've gotten closer. I'm getting closer. He's weeping for the people who are going to reject him. Not, he's pleased that he's going to have victory over sin. He's willing to do that. Why? Because he loves us so much. That's the only way he's going to free us from sin. But why he frees man from sin, those who reject that gift are now going to be under it. There are going to be those who reject. There is now a choice very clear through all of history of that. There's victory over sin, but those are go- there are going to be tears for those who are lost to sin. Those that from the battle are going to be lost, who are going to walk away, who are going to reject. They missed it. And today is your day. You know, this, this term, you know, this is the day. Besides all the prophecy, besides all the times, um, there's a guy, uh, Robert Sir Anderson, who did, did a study, and he's, he's into uh, astrology, but not, not like psycho stuff and anything like that. But Christian scientists look at the times, look at the clouds and everything else as far as how the days work and all this, puts together a very, very compelling argument to look at 483 days from the prophecy in Daniel at this time this was the day, the precise day Jesus had to come in. And there are some, I'm not going to say, there, there are some people that are, there's some controversy over it, but nothing I've ever come across that's ever disproved it. Nothing that you can pick up and go, hey, oh yeah, that obviously could be another option. No, he, he, and he's very well studied. But even at that, this day was obvious to those who were there. To Jesus, it was obvious this is the day he's entering. There's a tone, and so he comes in, and you look at it, and so here we have this general who comes in, and he pronounces over those who reject him, what? I'm going to take your head, 
and if you're in rebellion, I'm going to wipe you out from the face of the earth. I'm going to blot you out. You're not going to exist. No, he weeps for him. He weeps. And this word weeps, welling. Welling. You know, not, not just like a little, you know, with Aaliyah, we know the difference in a cry. You have a child, you start to learn differences in cry. Is that I don't want it cry? Is that I am, you know, a little concerned cry? Or nope, that one's everybody runs. There's a certain cry in the house with a child. That cry is made. Everybody, what's going on? What happened? You know, is she okay? And that he is weeping, welling. And in verse 43, it says, For the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you the ground, or to the ground, and they will not leave, or they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, speaking to Jerusalem, he says you will not, they will not leave you one stone upon another. Didn't say you, the building, won't have one stone upon another. He's talking about the people. And, and Jesus speaks kind of of five things happening here, which all within the next 40 years is fulfilled as Rome comes, General Titus, and, and, and subdues the city and, and lays siege to him. 40, within 40 years, just shy of 40 years, the city is surrounded. They build... They build a, a, a wall around it, a, an embankment around it. They're surrounded. They are laid siege. The city is destroyed utterly. They kill the inhabitants of the city, and the city is completely leveled. The temple is taken stone by stone apart because it was lit on fire, and all the gold from the temple melted and went between the foundation stones of the temple. So they ripped every stone apart to pull the gold out. Not one stone was left upon another. And that's why today there's still a debate even where the temple is. There are places the Jews have nothing there. The, the, the historian Josephus at the time wrote, all hope of escaping now was cut off from Jerusalem. Together with their liberties of going in and out of the city, they did, then did the famine widely its progression and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged and the children also. The young men wandered about the marketplace like shadows, all swollen with famine, fell down dead wherever they were, and misery had seized them. At a time, for a time, the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the walls into the valleys beneath. Then the Titus, the general, seizing the city on his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of the dead bodies, thick with, we'll leave that word out, it's just gross, and he gave a groan sparingly out of his hands to the Lord and said, God Call witness to me, this is not my doing. He didn't even, I, this horrible thing going on, the general who sees them under orders did not even want to take responsibility for how painful, how destructive this was. And Jesus cries out, 
You know, as he comes in, his war cry is for the salvation. His war cry is that none would be lost, and he weeps for them. And Jesus, as he comes into Jerusalem, and when he gets there, just as a Roman general would be, go to the temple of that town and make a sacrifice, Jesus goes and he doesn't quite make a sacrifice. Verse 45, it says, And then he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's interesting, when you look back at the parable of the master who goes off, the king that goes off to a foreign country and decides to leave so many mitas in each person's hand and comes back and to hold account, right? And there were those who did not want him to rule and be king, but when he first came back, who did he deal with first? Those who wanted him dead? No, he went to his servants first. And then he dealt with the people who were rejecting him as king, who sent adversaries against him to, the, to try to undermine his lordship, his kingship over that area. And here in the same manner, Jesus comes into the temple, and where does he go first? What does he do first? He weeps for the lost. He weeps for those who are going to reject him, but he goes into his house, and those who are misrepresenting God, him to the world, he deals with. He drives them out. He calls and drives them out. Now, they were out in the court of the Gentiles buying and selling, and what would happen is, as you came to Jerusalem, you'd have to come and you'd give offerings. Well, they decided this is a good deal. Your money isn't good here, so you can trade your $1 for one dollar of temple currency but that's going to take you 20 to one. Oh, your lamb here that you brought for sacrifice we have to inspect your lamb isn't clean enough for sacrifice you have to buy one of our lambs and we'll give you a discount on buying yours we'll take that off the hands for you and then the next guy comes up and they sell you his lamb that wasn't clean five minutes ago you know that's what was going on the whole point of Jerusalem and Israel in the Old Testament, the he, Jewish people were supposed to be a representation of God to the world. There was a Gentile court, the closest a Gentile could get to God. And in that court, where the unchosen, the sinners, the people that were considered wretched, the unwanted by God, still had a spot to come and worship. And in that court, that's where they decided to set up a place of robbery and thieving. And so when you see this representation, and here is where God, here is when Jesus gets angry and deals with it and makes a whip, is in his own house, and he drives them out. And it's, it's interesting to see this when you look at Scripture and you look at Scripture in a whole and again, we talk about the, the you know, you, you look at trends in the churches that go and come and go and come and different things. And you sit there and you get people where one thing is they're sitting there and they're going, yes, you can come in your sin and stuff and you don't have to change. God loves you in your sin. He didn't come to rule and reign and have victory over that. There isn't a triumph over sin. He loves you how you are. Continue sinning and go on. And then you have some that come in and say, well, guess what? You know, because of your sin, you're not wanted at all. You're too sinful for God. Not that he doesn't want you, but you're never going to want him, so what's the point? You know, and, and they declare, just start to declare things that God has made clean, unclean within the church 
for whatever their purpose is, and generally for profit, generally for self-focus. You know, they get in there and they, they start to beat up on, oh, look at that guy over there in that ministry. He's wrong because of this, and there's no way this, you know. Billy Graham, Billy Graham doesn't use the King James Bible. He only uses the new King James. Therefore, he's leading people to hell now, and, the, you know. And it's like, these comments made, do you know the man? Have you seen the fruit in his life? I mean, I'd be cautious. And even with other ministries, I'm, I'm very cautious in, in laying judgment. There's only times I see in judgment of God ever calling anybody or, or putting a final judgment on anybody, and that's God himself. I have no say in a life. I have no clue where that person is. Yes, I can see fruit. I can see the reaction of a relationship and go, wow, look, there is good fruit in this person's life or there's bad fruit and something's wrong with them and they need to change. But when it comes to writing off it and, and declaring things that God has used for good as bad, not to say God can't use wicked men sometimes, you know, or, or men greatly flawed in their theology. Praise God, he still uses me. But you look at those things and you go, okay, where's the balance in Scripture? Where's the balance in Scripture? Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Those who are lost, what is he doing for them? He's weeping. Those who are in the church deceiving people that call themselves holy and righteous, what is he with them? He is angry. It's amazing how you can, so many people will sit in their church and go, God, we want revival. Deal with all these sinners. This person that's, you know, I can't believe the president's this, or I can't believe this person in power, he's so wicked, or this, or this school board, you know, lady, whatever, she's a liberal in that case, and why is she running our school? God, just deal with her. And God wants to deal with the church and us first. So many times we're so worried about that or them and God get them, God get them, and God goes, no, we need a clean house first. Where's your heart? That's where revival is. Be a clear representation of who I am and I will deal with them. I know their heart. I know how to get to them and I love them and I weep for them. And that's the proper heart. And there's, there is a time for God's judgment. There is a time, but this time what we are called to is the Lamb of God who came and died for the sins of the world. The Lion of Judah is returning. These people who were going to come under this judgment, Jesus weep, but what else did he do? He was honest. He warned them about it. The wrath to come. He weeped and he said, hey, look, I'm sad. I'm this and this, and this is what's going to come. You ever run into somebody? Just, just a scenario. I mean, we, there's a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. What an amazing book. Of, of just how this group of people were praying and seeking God, and they ended up in this very lower downrun area where um, the homosexual uh, trade was booming and men and everything else being sold and traded, and they went down there and they ministered and prayed for these people. And first, they wept in prayer for their souls, and God worked. And many and many were saved, and a whole revival began out of that. And you look at those things and go, you know, weeping for the lost, praying for them, warning them. If you come up to somebody and say, you continue to do that, you're going to hell. That's not biblical. You come up to them and go, man, there's something better. God has a better life. You don't need to do this. There's a purpose. That's a proper application. God loves you. 
you don't want to go the direction you're going. It ends in destruction. There is hope. There is good news. That is where God's at. That's where the Savior we have. That's the example He gives us here as He goes to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, being a wanted man, the Jewish people looking for Him, He goes and hides. Look at verse 47. And it says, He says, He was teaching daily in the temple. So He's hiding out in the middle of the temple teaching in front of everybody. But the chief priests and the scribes and all the leaders of the people sought to destroy Him but were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hearing him. So, you know, the best place to hide is right in the middle of the temple, in the middle of their temple, the Jewish temple, his father's house, and teach. And actually, maybe Jesus knew better, but I mean, because you look, when they get him alone in the Garden of Gethsemane, they have to find him out where nobody's going to see what we're doing and do it all in night. It's amazing how, you know, that when, you, when, when justice is on your side, you want to accomplish things in the middle of the darkness and night as quick as you can, you know? It's like we all go, we all go uh, Thanksgiving away and, and Christmas away, and then our government passes some laws you find out about later in January, right? While everybody's on recess and break, you come back and go, what did they do? Uh, you know, we're all eating turkey and watching football or whatever, not the news. But, you know, it's amazing to see this. And what's amazing is here some are sitting there seeking to destroy him and some, though, are sitting and listening. What an awesome time that would have been. Here Jesus before the cross to sit and listen to his heart, to know. It's like, man, what an amazing point and what an amazing time to be able to sit at that point, even though we still have him now and he still speaks to us very clearly. But so who is this man? This man who came lowly, not in a great force, you know, who, who, who didn't force himself upon the people, who, whose symbols are those who are healed and who are saved and changed lives, people that have gone from living in darkness and death into light, weeping for the lost, caring for the lost, grieving for the lost, being concerned about those who are misrepresenting him to the world, willing to confront those people. That's our Savior. That's who he is. Isn't that an awesome thing to know that he didn't come in like a ruling, you know, reigning, this is our Lord. It's just so refreshing to see. And when you can sit down and you look at things, and again, if you want to get into, oh, well, this verse and this and this, look at the whole you know, when somebody sometimes throws some kind of verse at you, oh, by the way, this is happening, and this is off, and you just sit there and go, and it's like, I don't even have a verse to respond. But I mean, Just keep reading through your Bible. Keep the morning devotions, because that's not who you see repeatedly. I mean, can you show me where that's different? Yeah, let's just start at Genesis, and we'll start going all the way through. Let's look at the life of Christ. Let's look at, you know what I mean? Do you want a particular verse that shows his heart where he's at? He's weeping for the lost. Some of the original uh, uh, older translations of the Bible, not the text or except the stuff we go back to, but some of the early, there was a point where some of the translations of the Bible left that part of Jesus weeping out. Because God, we're going to help him out, because God doesn't weep. He isn't going to weep for those things. That's, that's not a strong, powerful God. And people would do the same today, though. That's not our God. He doesn't. We weep for the lost. He wants to judge them. He's going to put them in hell. And, you know, they deserve it. And God wants these people to die. And, you know, and he's going to judge sin. And no, he weeps. He cares for those. And so as we sit here and we look at this and you go, okay, who is your Lord? 
Who is your Lord? Is He Lord of your life? Are, are you worshiping Him? Are you current with Him? Do you know Him? Do you spend time with Him? The greatest thing in this body and in your life is to spend time with Jesus. We have the two and a half year reading plan that we updated out there again. I don't care where you're at. Take time and spend time with Jesus. The best thing about all these horrible things that can come through and distract and destroy churches and people's lives and theology are solved by what? Reading through the Bible. Just read through it. It's easy to see when somebody comes, if somebody came up to me and told me, you know, your wife beats kids, I'd be like, I don't even need to entertain that. I'm sorry, you don't know my wife. No, I saw her. No, you saw the wrong person. Or you have something. I'm sorry. It's just like, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not worth, it's not even worth discussing this. I know who I know. I know him well. And this is my Lord and he's not that. And that's off. I don't care what you want to pull out of context or twist around. It's not the truth. Now, if God is your savior, if he is the lamb who saved and died for your sins, what good news. But if he's not, the Lion of Judah is going to return. Because we do have another triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Revelations 19.11 Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame, and on his head were many clouds. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horse. Now out of his mouth a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron, and he himself treads the winepress of the furnace and the wrath of the Almighty, and he has on his robe and on his thigh is written the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is either your king and your Lord, or you are his enemy. And that day will come. And that day will come quicker for some of us than others. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. So yes, we have the Lamb of God who's done everything we need to have a right relationship with Him. Completed it, accomplished it 100% on the cross. But if you reject Him and you don't desire Him to be clean, He weeps because this day has to come. He will judge. He will ride in on a white horse. And in that day, whoa. And this is the day he ultimately talks about knowing will come. But for now, you got to tell people God loves you, change, because the line of Judah is returning. He's coming back from a lamb to a lion. So what a sobering thought, you know. And, and one of those things we can do is, you know, and I've talked about before, is being complacent, you know. And get, okay, yeah, God's return is coming. We should be ready. What's the wrath to come to have that heart to see that? You know, it's like you use the example everybody's on a bus, we're traveling on a bus, the bridge is out and the brakes are broken. 
and you're going to sit there and talk about what? Ooh, what color pretty hair dye you have. I like your shoes. I want to get some shoes like that. I'm going to be jealous. I mean, instead of we're going to die, we need to make a choice. You need to get saved. Guess what? You can get off the bus. It's slow enough around this corner. Let's get off. Let's do something. Let's not go off the cliff and die together. Instead of just being complacent or unloving and selfish. So as we pray, if the worship leader would come up, Chris would come up. Blessing to have him. Um, if you guys lack anything in your arsenal about Pat Verfurth that you would like to expand on in your arsenal against him, uh, Chris has known him for a very long time. His wife, longer. His wife's known him since elementary school. Um, they might, if I, we, we can find or coerce some breakdancing videos to show later on Facebook those things but no totally a blessing to have him come and share continue to pray for phil and suzanne and his health as they go through those things let's pray dear god we thank you for your word we thank you for who you are and how amazing you are and just to see your heart just to that we get to know you the god of all creation that you desire just to reveal yourself to us through your word that you are so loving and patient god that you are loving and patient with us god we pray that you would just go through our house, hearts and clean house. That if there's anything that is causing anybody to stumble or struggle, Father, or anything off, you would just purify us. That we would be a vessel for your glory. That would be a clear representation of you and your love to this world. God, just, pure, just make us anew this morning. Make us afresh. By your word, Father, fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.